Okay, uh, turn to Judges 8. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, we're going to look at the tail end of Gideon's life. Uh, we're going to start this way. The NFL, the National Football League, um, has the Hall of Fame for its best of the best, right? Most of us know that. Uh, to be a football star in high school is a great honor. Uh, it puts you in the top 1% of your high school football team. Uh, it puts you in the top 10% of high school players in the state that you play in. Uh, to be a football star in college is a rare honor. Uh, it's only 7%, now listen, only 7% of all high school athletes of every sport go on to play in college, at any level in college, Division I, Division II, Division III. Only 2% of all high school athletes in any sport go on to play at the Division I level. That's 1 in 57. About approximately 1,093,234 high school football players in the country right now will go on to play in college. That's a 6.5% or 71,060 kids will go on to the next level. So just for fun, what's the hardest sport to get into Division I in? Do you all know what the hardest sport to get into Division I in is? For men, it's wrestling. Wrestling. That's 2.7% of all high school wrestlers make it to Division I. For women, it's a tie between volleyball and basketball. A 3.9% of all high school volleyball and basketball players make it to D1. Okay, so let's get back to the football. Let's say you make it to the NFL. What would that be like? First of all, it would be an off-the-charts incredible achievement. I mean, phenomenal. You would be a great white shark swimming among other great whites. You had reached the epitome, the highest point of your sport, of your gifting. Um, only nine and 10,000 high school football players make it to the NFL. That's less than 1%. So what should you feel when you watch an NFL game? Should you feel jealousy? Should you feel envy? Should you feel inferiority? Should you feel like, oh, why... I'm so insignificant. No, you shouldn't feel that at all. You should feel awe. You should feel joy. You should feel like, I can't believe this can even be done, and I get to see it. Just another fun fact. Guess which high school has sent the most players into the NFL? Waco High. Waco High. It ties with... Junipero Sarah High School in California, if anybody knows what that is. They have both sent 22 players into the NFL. Incredible. Central Texas, Waco, again, right? So what's the point of all this? Here's the point. It's a big deal to make it into the Hall of Fame. It's the best of the best. In Hebrews chapter 11, Gideon is in the Hall of Faith. He's the best of the best in the world of faith. He's in the, the great white realm. In the whole human history, he's in the hall of faith. In all the Bible, he's in the hall of faith. Of all the spiritual giants, he's in the hall of faith. In all of the history of Christianity, he's in the hall of faith. Gideon is a hero of the faith. So let's watch this hero 
in action. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're going to read a large chunk. I couldn't figure out how to divide it up. It just couldn't happen. If you need to sit down, please feel free to do that. All right, so this is after the, the pots and pans victory, right? This is after the big old victory against the Midianites that looked like grasshoppers on the sea. So then the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this that you've done to us? You didn't call us when you went out to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grapes harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Sukkoth, please give us loaves of bread to the people who follow me. They are exhausted and I'm pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand? That we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna, into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel, spoke the same to them, and the men of Penuel answered and said to the men, as the men of Sukkoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come, against, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men. Now remember, Gideon has 300. All who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by that way, the tent dwellers east of Nobath, Jogbatha, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres. He captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zeba, Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand? That we should give bread to your men who are exhausted. And so he took the elders of the city, and he took the thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. I wonder what that was like. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. The men of the city, he killed them all. Then he said to Zeba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, these are the two kings of Midian. As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the king of a son. And he said, Gideon said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn son, rise and kill them. But the young man, I want you to think of an 11-year-old boy like Ty, my son, a sixth grader. Rise, young man, kill them. He did not draw a sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were about their necks 
Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over my son, rule over you or my son. So his theology was good, right? He knew that he shouldn't be king. So at least intellectually, confessionally, he affirmed what was true. Only God could be king. But watch what happens functionally. Watch what happens in his heart. He wants to be king. And Gideon said to them, hey, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from a spoil, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them to you. And he spread the cloak, and every man threw the earrings in his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels, that's 75 pounds, besides the crescent ornaments and pendants and purple garments worn by their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it. Now, this is pretty creepy because this should give us, like, thoughts of the golden calf. And put it in a city in Oprah. And all Israel whored after it there. Those are an interesting choice of words. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. And so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Let's do this. The land had rest for 40 years. We'll end on that. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, Lord, we ask that you would, even now, show up in the wonder and the wind and the divine breath of your word. So, Holy Spirit, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you demonstrate, demonstrate the wonder of your person and the power of your work in our lives? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here, a little textural train. Patterns are a big deal in Judges. So I want you to think of patterns like a skeletal structure. I want you to think of the bone structure, the literary structure, the bone, backbone of the meaning and life of the church. So patterns are like the skeletal structure of the whole book of Judges. So if you break the pattern, you're breaking the bones of Judges. You're breaking the bones of its meaning. So Here's the pattern for each judge so far that we've had. It's this. There's the deliverance of the judge. There's the peace for such and such years. And then there's the end. Until now. Gideon is the first time that we're given life after the deliverance. That's a break in the pattern. There is something that God wants us to see. There's something that he wants you and I to see for the first time in all the books of Judges. Of all the Judges, he wants you to see what life is like after the deliverance. So if Paul was here, and he was writing a commentary on, on Judges, perhaps it's Galatians, he'd say he wants to show us what life is like after the cross. In other words, this part of Gideon is not about his conversion, how he became a God follower. This part of Gideon is what his life is like as a God follower. It's after his conversion. So here's the question. This is the one we're asking for the text. What does God want you to see? What does he want you to know? What does he want to get deep into your bones about life as a God follower? We could say it this way, but I want to stick to Godfather because we're in the Old Testament. What does God want you to know about the Christian life? What does he want you to see about the Christian life? 
What does he want you to get deep into your bones about the Christian life right now? Look at Judges 8, 1. Then the men of Ephraim. You see that Ephraim? Ephraim's the most powerful tribe in all of Israel. Said to him, what is Gideon? Well, we learned earlier in 6 and 7 that Gideon comes from the weakest tribe in all of Israel. So we have the, the strongest tribe, the most powerful tribe, the elite tribe in all of Israel coming up to a nobody. Do you think they looked down on him? Do you think they felt superior? Of course they did. And this is what they said. What is this that you've done to us? You didn't call us when you went out to fight against Midian. They accused him fiercely. So the question is, why are they so mad at Gideon? And the answer is because they had their glory taken from them. They missed out on the glory of the victory, right? Their glory got blocked. Their honor got blocked. Their opportunity to be a somebody got blocked. Why didn't you call us when you went out to fight? All of us know what this feels like. Have any of you ever been blocked of the opportunity to be great? Or what you thought was an opportunity to be great? Has anyone ever been blocked of the opportunity to be appreciated? Has someone ever stolen your appreciation? Have you ever not received the recognition and the appreciation that you've wanted? You know what this feels like when someone steals your glory, when someone else gets the girl. You know what this feels like when your role is minimized in a situation. You know, someone's going to tell the story about something that happened at work or some achievement that happened in the church or something that happened in ministry, and they tell the story and they left you out. I've never felt this way of you. Why not me, right? That's what the Ephraimites are doing. They got, their glory's been missed. Their glory's been blocked. Now, Ephraim's response is exactly, remember when God was warning Israel about going to fight the Midianites, he was concerned about one thing. He was concerned about this thing right here. And then exactly why he whittled down, remember the Israelite army to 300? He whittled them down because he wanted them to not be thinking and feeling and experiencing life and looking at life and seeing reality as if their self-effort had done it. In other words, God does not want Israel to lead a self-deliverance life. God wanted to whittle Israel down to such an extent that there would be the absolute impossibility for them to see that their self-effort saved them, that there was a self-deliverance at all in what was happening in Midian. And he warned them of this because he knows this is destructive to us. So how does Gideon respond to Ephraim? And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I done? What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided because he said this. So how does Gideon respond? He flatters them. He appeals to them being a somebody. He appeals to their celebrityness. He appeals to their pride. What I did was nothing. 
Look what you did. You've got two leaders. One commentator says it this way, with their desire for glory and praise satisfied, their resentment against him, Gideon, subsided. But did you catch what else Gideon said? Did you see what he said in that text? How he responded to them? Let's do it again. What have I done in comparison to you? And he says it twice. It's recorded twice. What have I done? What have I done? What have I done in comparison to you? What does God want you to see? What does he want you to know deep in your bones about life after deliverance, about life as a God follower? <laughs> he wants you to know that you still have to be delivered from yourself. He wants you to know that you still have to be delivered from self-effort, from self-deliverance. Because the Christian life is a struggle with trying to live a self-deliverance life. What else does God want you to see? Look at Sukkoth and Penuel. Those are two Israelite towns, remember? Now, what should they have done? They should have given aid to Gideon. Gideon liberated them. <laughs> I mean, he liberates them. He sets them free. He defeats these. He's the one that fights against them. And they don't give him aid. He simply asks for bread. He, he's asking for bread. He's not asking for a steak. He's not asking for roast lamb. He's not asking for a pit fire barbecue feast. He's asking for bread. Can you give my exhausted men, my 300 men that have just fought 120,000 men? You do the odds. What is that per man? Can you just give us some bread? We've, we've broke the yoke of your oppressor. Can we just have some bread? Can we just have some water? And what's he get? Nothing but attitude. Nothing but disrespect. Who are you, Gideon? You're a nobody. Again, we're better than you, Gideon. He gets more snubby, more disrespect, just like Ephraim. I mean, think of it this. He's basically saying, we don't, we don't care about your vision. We don't care about your, your way of seeing the world, dude. We don't care about your mission and your call. Whatever is going on with you, we don't care. So what does Gideon do? Well, you got to give him credit because he does keep his word. What does he do in verse 15? Well, he comes back to them, right? And he flails them with briars and thorns. Remember, he went and got a person from those towns and says, who are the leaders of this town? Oh, there's 70 of them. He got every one of their names. And he went and whipped them, literally. And why does Gideon do this? Why does he retaliate like this? Why does he hate back like this? Because it's the same thing we do. It's the exact same thing we do. Look at verse 15. He gives you the reason. Gideon tells you why he did all this. Because you taunted me. Because you tried to whittle me down. And 
And when you get taunted and when you get whittled down and when I get taunted and I get whittled down, what do we do? We do the same thing. We fight back. We hate back. We don't forgive. We defend our reputation. We overreact with rage. We say unkind and untrue things about people. The Bible, they call that slander, gossip. We never go and actually have the conversation. This is what we do. What does God want you to see as a God follower? What does God want you to see about the Christian life? This is the only person, the only place in Judges where you get life after the deliverance. The only place where you get life as a God follower. And what does he want you to see? We still need to be delivered from ourselves. We still need to be delivered from self-effort. We still need to be delivered from self-wisdom and self-reliance. God does not want us to live a self-deliverance life. Let's keep going. Look at Zuba and Zalmunna, the two Midian kings, right? In verses 18 through 21, Gideon finally captures them. Now, remember, Gideon's men are exhausted, right? They're thirsty and they're starving and they got no aid. So they stop. To get aid, they get no aid, and Gideon goes, we're still going. And he pushes them and pushes them 81 miles to be exact through the desert with no water and no bread after already fighting 120,000 to go get 55,000 more. So what's the odds? What Each man now has to kill 50 people each. Once they reach them, there's a battle and you got to ask yourself, though, what's driving Gideon? What's pushing him and pushing him? What's pushing his men and pushing his men? What drives you? What pushes you? In your work, in your home, in church, what pushes you? What drives you? What gets you up in the morning? That's the question that's being asked. What's the Christian life for you and me? Is it what pushing him is love for God? Is what's pushing him love for others? is what's pushing Gideon, that he has this sense of vision and this mission to be used by God in the world, to be a part of what God's doing in Israel. Is that what's pushing him? We know the answer to that. No. Vengeance is pushing him. Specifically, he wants to restore his family honor. How do we know this? Because, again, he goes... Where are the men from whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. Yeah, because they look like Gideon. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. The Lord lives. If you had saved them, I would not kill you. And that's why he turns to his firstborn son, because it's a matter of family honor. Son, it's a matter of our name. You represent me. It's devastating. The whole scene is horrible. And it's not horrible because I feel bad for these two kings. I'd take their life too. It's horrible because of what Gideon does to a, an 11-year-old boy, his son. Gideon need, he has this high need for self-honor. He has this need to earn his honor so much that he ends up destroying his son. And what God wants us to see in this particular horrific scene is that self-honor never works. Earning your honor 
never works. It destroys lives. What does God want you to see? What does he want you to know? What does he want you to feel deep in your bones? The answer is this. As a Christian, as a God follower, you still need, be de- you still need to be delivered from yourself. You still need to be delivered from self-effort and self-deliverance. God does not want us to live a self-deliverance life. All right, so here's the ultimate point. Here's, the ultimate point is this for the Christian life. What are the implications of this? It's this. We are always in need of continual renewal. Always in need of continual deliverance. Always in need of Christians being continually reached, continually renewed. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, says it this way. This is at the end of his life of being a pastor for a long time. If you know his bio, it's phenomenal. But this is as a Christian. This is as a pastor. This is as a a hymn writer. This is writing the most popular song that's ever been written in human history, Amazing Grace. This is what he says. The life of faith seems so simple and easy in theory that I can point it out to others in few words. But in practice, it is very difficult. And my advances are slow that I hardly dare say I get forward at all. I had a Brown student when he came to know Christ and about three years into the ministry, he's graduating and he turned to me and he goes, you know, Jeff, before I was a Christian, my life was simple and easy and uncomplicated. And then I became a Christian. And I went, well, you don't, you don't, you're not on that victorious Christian life wagon, are you? Right? Because I was. My answer to him was, hey, man, you need to know how to live the Christian life, dude. What's wrong with you? At the time, that's what I would have said to him. Luther says it this way in his legendary 95 theses, and this is the first theses. So the first theses is setting the course for the next 94. The first theses is, is the engine that drives the other 94, and these are legendary 95 theses that were part of starting the absolute most cataclysmic, cosmic, outpouring of the Spirit of God in human history. Number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. In other words, Luther is saying the Christian life from beginning to end is always continually being delivered from yourself. That every one of us always need to continually be reached and renewed and pulled out and saved from ourselves. Paul was here to say we need to be safe in that old self. Repentance is that honest assessment of who we are and learning to turn away from self-deliverance and self-effort and self-reliance and feel the self-futility of ourselves so we turn in faith to another. See how this works? Luther said the Christian life is a life of continual deliverance from yourself. A guy named Dane Ortland wrote in a book called Gentle and Lowly. He has one out now on the Christian life, and he says it this way. Have you been brought to despair of what you can achieve in your sanctification? What a great question. He says to all Christians, he goes, listen, Christians, church leaders, pastors, ministers, missionaries, have you been brought to despair in the Christian life? Have you been brought to despair in your sanctification? And he goes on to say it this way. Don't just admit your condition is desperately ruinous, because it is. Let yourself feel it. Ponder it. Unhurriedly 
feel how vile left to yourself you are. Let it humble you. Let it take you down. Not to stay there, wallowing, but to shed the superficial optimism that we are so naturally, that we so naturally believe about ourselves. In other words, here's the point. Let your self-effort take you down. Let it take you down. Let your struggle with yourself take you down. Let this passion and this addiction and this obsession of self take you down so that you rise in another. Everybody wants to be somebody. Again, if we were in Galatians, we'd say everybody's trying to what? Justify themselves. So what do you do with this struggle? What do you do with this reality that's in us called sin, that the heart of it is self-effort? The heart of it is self-justification. The answer from judges is let it take you down. Feel it so that you realize you only can rise in another. What if Gideon did this, though? What if we were to look at what Gideon just did in those three instances as someone who lets his struggle with self-effort, because we see it everywhere, right? His need to deliver himself is everywhere. His need to earn his honor is everywhere. What if that, he let that take him down so that he would rise in another? What if we put that over those things? You know what would happen? Okay, Ephraim. It's not about my self-deliverance, and it's not about your self-deliverance. It's about God's deliverance. So Ephraim, join me. Let's be a part of what God is doing in the world. Let's be a part of what he's doing in Israel, Ephraim. Maybe that's how he would have responded. Okay, Sukkoth and Penuel, listen, God is my deliverer. You jerks and antagonists, you belittlers, you critics. Listen, God is my deliverer, not you. I don't need your respect. And when you disrespect me, I'm okay. I don't need to punish your disrespect because God is my deliverer. That would have been a different interaction, wouldn't it? How about this one, Ziba and Zalmunna, the two kings? Gentlemen, you deserve to die. For the wages of sin is death. That means I deserve to die. That means all of Israel deserves to die. That means my 11-year-old son deserves to die. Now, it's a little different because Gideon is a judge and you and I are not. So if, if God has, if God is bringing judgment on sin at that moment, that's, that's God's business. But you and I are never in that position, so this is never us. So we would have conversations like this. Um, yes, you do deserve to die, and so do I. And then I would turn to, he would turn to his son and say, son, the wages of sin is death, but God loves sinners, and God is your deliverer, son. What does God want us to see? What does he want you to feel deep in your bones? 
about how Gideon ends, about life after the cross. He wants us to see there's only one hero, and it's not us. He wants us to see that the Christian life from beginning to end is about faith, ongoing faith, continual faith, from conversion to the end, all through the after, in one hero and one hero alone. That's why in Hebrews 11, we're told that Gideon does make it into the Hall of Faith. He does, doesn't he? I mean, it's incredible. What a great honor. It's rare. It's like the Hall of Fame. You know, we try to give just a little how rare it is for some kid to get to the NFL, which a lot of kids, evidently, 22 of them from Waco have. But if you look at Gideon, if you look at the Hall of Faith in, in Hebrews 11 a little more closely, you know what you see? It's really fascinating. You see the image of this huge arena. So it's a sports event. It's the Greek pantheons. It's the Greek Olympic arenas of their famous Olympics. And all the people in the Hall of Faith, all the heroes of the faith that are listed from the old world and the new world, they're all listed in there. And you're like, holy cow, they're here. This is the Hall of Faith of all human history. But they're all sitting in the stands. It's amazing. They're in the arena. They're in the stands. And they're all watching something. And they're all cheering something on. And you look into the arena and you see that they're cheering on Christians. They're cheering on you and me. They're this great cloud of witnesses. It's amazing. And then all of a sudden you look a little more closely and the scene changes though and it narrows down to actually one person alone in the arena. And the Hebrews writer calls him this. There's only one runner left in the arena and calls him the author and finisher of faith. There's only one author and there's only one finisher of faith. There are these heroes of the faith that are watching you and I, Christians, and all of a sudden the scene actually goes, no, fooled you. Does a judo move on us? Actually, we're in the arena too. There's only one person in the arena. There's only one hero of the faith. And the Hebrew writer says, and all eyes are on him. Fix your eyes on him. All eyes on him. Amen.